0: 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns, Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Saul left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600.
1: Thanks, Jacob. Uh, my name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting today, it's great to have you with us. And we're going to be spending some time now reflecting on those words, unpacking them, and hearing what God has to say to us as Uh, His people. So let's pray that He would uh, work in our hearts as we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you're a God who works in history, but that you're also a God who has made known your explanation of history uh, in the Bible. And we pray that now, as we reflect on uh, one example of that, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand who you are, the God of absolute holiness and purity, the God of great grace and mercy. Uh, But Lord, also to understand who we are, uh, sinners in need of your grace. Father, please uh, speak to our hearts, we ask it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever started out uh, with something really, really positively, a new venture, a new escapade, or whatever it might be. You're really excited, you've got up, all your hopes kind of stored up for what it might bring about. Uh, You've got this little project on the go. Maybe you've started a new job or something like that. Uh, Maybe you've shifted to a new subject at school and, uh, you know, you feel like you've hit your sweet spot. Uh, Maybe you've started playing a new sport or you've joined a new team and, and it really seems to be working out for you. It seems to be your thing. And at first, everything seems to be going really well. Uh, Everything seems to be going fantastically, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, everything just starts to crumble. Uh, All the things you were trying to escape from before with this new project, all those things come back to haunt you. Uh, You thought that this new thing, this new strategy, this new scheme was the answer to your problems, you thought it was the way forward, and yet now it's clear that it hasn't really helped at all, and in fact, things maybe are, are worse than they were before. And in a way, that's really what the situation here is in this chapter of 1 Samuel that Jacob read for us. In the last few weeks, uh, for those who were here, we have been working through the book of 1 Samuel and we've seen how the people were in trouble. They were in danger from the nations that were surrounding them. Uh, They were under attack from these foreign powers. And so they'd asked God for a king like all the other nations had. And God in his mercy had given them a king. He'd given them... King Saul and at first it looks like things are going really well, they defeat their enemies, uh, they're excited, they're pumped up, uh, they're on top of the world but then all of a sudden in this chapter things start to fall apart, the wheels start to come off and what looks like a way forward turns out to be the same old problems coming flooding back all over again. At the beginning of the chapter, then, we find King Saul, this king that God had given the people. We find King Saul forming an army and launching an attack. That's where things start. He launches an attack against the Philistines, uh, a regional kind of superpower. He launches an attack against them through his son, Jonathan. And it's already sort of clear at the beginning of the chapter that things are not quite... As good as they might be, so we're told that uh, Saul has three thousand men. There's about two thousand that he keeps for himself, and there's a thousand that he distributes to his son Jonathan. It's kind of a sub-military commander. But even though his son Jonathan has the smaller fighting force, half the size, it's his son who goes out to do battle. And having won the attack through Jonathan, Saul then takes the opportunity to claim the success and the credit for himself. He sounds the horn throughout Israel and he proclaims, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Well, kind of he had, but it was really his son Jonathan who'd done it. But no sooner has he boasted about his success over this outpost... When the Philistines begin to hit back, they amass their troops and begin to threaten the people of Israel. We're told that they gather 3,000 chariots and 6,000 men. And when the Israelite army sees these opposing forces, we're told that it looks to them like sand on the the seashore. They they feel completely uh, overwhelmed and outnumbered. And again, as we've seen before, Israel starts to panic. Look at verse 6 of that chapter, it says, When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Has anyone ever played paintball? And you end up in those ridiculously improbable situations where you're trying to hide behind a tree that's only, you know, a few inches thick. You're terrified. And there's paintballs hitting the dust all around you. It's ridiculous. And here is the army of God's people hiding in thickets, in caves, in wells. According to verse 7, some people even take the opportunity to flee to the other side of the Jordan. They're terrified more and more it becomes clear that panic is the default kind of response of the people of Israel. If you think back earlier in Samuel, the Philistines had again attacked Israel, they defeated them, again the people of Israel had panicked and they'd gathered up the Ark of the Covenant and they they sort of took it out into battle as a good luck charm. And they end up being defeated, they lost the Ark, went off for a number of years... It wasn't until they turned back to God that God came and delivered them. And then a few chapters later, another person, Nahash the Ammonite, he'd come up against them and again that they'd, they'd panicked. And that time they'd asked for a king. They didn't try the ark strategy again. They thought, no, this time we'll go with the king and they'd ask God for that. But it wasn't Saul who'd saved them. It was the Spirit of God who rushed on Saul and then he went out and won the battle. But now the people are under threat yet again, third time, and once again they're terrified and once again they've forgotten the power of God. And it would almost be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so terribly familiar to us. God delivers us, and then we forget. God delivers us, and then next time we panic and fall into a spin. I know a growth group leader, they're not from this church, so you won't be able to guess who it is. I know a growth group leader who panics every every time before growth group. Every time they imagine that their group will be a Catastrophe. By catastrophe they mean that there might be awkward silences and that maybe not that many people will turn up. It's not, not a great catastrophe. But every time they panic. And every time they get very anxious. And they think, oh, I can't do this. And every time I talk to them, they say, and you know what? I was so anxious. And then I went and people turned up and we just you know, it's just great, people were really engaged. Wonderful conversations. God was gracious. And then next time, they panic again. We have it uh, whenever we run Christianity Explored. Jacob talked a moment ago about that. Uh, every time we run that, we tend to think that no one's going to turn up. We think, oh, it's going to be empty. There's going to be three empty tables and just facilitators, and yet every time God in his grace brings people along to hear the gospel explained. Someone told me the other day that uh, their friend shared with them they thought it was the most wonderful thing they'd ever been to, that you could come along to a place and talk about God. They'd never experienced anything like that in their life. It can happen to us, panic that is, when we look at the world. We think the world is falling apart. And so we begin to hide in our caves. And if we're not hiding in our caves, we at least begin the doomsday preparation. The food stocks for the zombie apocalypse. But we don't need to hide in our caves or in the thickets or run away as fast as we can from the world because God is faithful and God is powerful and He's done it before and He'll do it again. We can be afraid when we look at society. We can think Well maybe the church will be destroyed or Christian liberties will will, will end. Maybe schools will Christian schools and Christian organisations will be shut down. And so we begin to hide in our caves. And maybe all those catastrophes will happen. Who knows? But Samuel shows us that God is in control. He's strong and mighty. We can be afraid when we go to share the gospel with someone. We imagine catastrophe. We think that maybe they won't talk to us anymore or or it will end the friendship or the family relationship. We're afraid of saying too much and the consequences and so we hide in our caves and we keep our mouths shut while the world perishes around us but God is powerful he's done it before he's won the victories he'll do it again if we forget that God is powerful and that God is in control then we'll end up again and again, like the people of Israel, hiding in caves and in thickets and in holes in the ground. But if we remember that God is mighty, if we remember that God is the mighty, mighty king, then we'll have great confidence to step out in faith. So this chapter shows us, first of all, that uh, the people panic and we panic, but we've got to trust God. But not only do the people panic, so does their leader, King Saul. At first in this chapter, when everything starts, the wheels start to come off, Saul kind of looks like he's doing okay. Hasn't started well, but he looks like he's doing okay when the wheels start to fall off. He, as everyone around him is fleeing and hiding, he remains there at Gilgal. He at least isn't running away with everyone else. That would probably be, be, be me, I'd be at the front of the pack running away. Uh, but Saul isn't doing that. Uh, he He's waiting uh, there with his troops. He waits, in fact, for seven days for Samuel to arrive. It seems that Samuel has earlier told him to wait for him to come. And Saul waits out these seven days. But the, by the seventh day, his troops are getting a bit anxious and they're fleeing, they're beginning to scatter even more. And as he looks at his ever-dwindling army... Uh, And he doesn't see Samuel arriving. He thinks to himself, Well, I've got to do something. I've got to take matters into my own hands. The troops are fleeing, the Philistines are gathering. And so he does what all leaders are supposed to do, doesn't he? He takes the bull by the horns and he does something, he acts decisively. And just as he finishes, he he calls for the sacrifices. Uh, He makes the sacrifices. And just as he finishes, along comes Samuel, who he's been waiting for. And Saul obviously doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He thinks, you know, that he's done the right thing. He's, He's acted decisively. So he goes out to welcome Samuel. Samuel, it's all right. We don't need you. I've sorted it all out. And Samuel says... What have you done? They're ominous words, those words. They're actually the words that God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden. What have you done? Uh, They're the words that God speaks to Cain after he murders his brother Abel. What have you done? Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul says in verse 11, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. It sounds like Eve, doesn't it? When I saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit was good for, for eating and for making someone wise, I thought, oh... Maybe I should do that. And Samuel replies to Saul, "You've done a foolish thing." But, but honestly. is ask for your forgiveness when you dare to forgive them even though you risk being hurt again when you dare to forgive them in obedience to god god is glorified god is honored and glorified when He trust him enough to do the improbable obedience the biggest obstacle in our lives to obeying god is our lack of trust We don't obey because we don't think it will work. And we think worse than that. We think that obedience will lead to catastrophe. But ironically, it's not obedience that leads to catastrophe, it's disobedience. We see that in the chapter. The chapter ends with Saul counting his men. There's 600 people. There were 3,000 at the beginning of the chapter. And the chapter ends with 600. That's all that's left. It's not obedience that leads to catastrophe, but disobedience. So the people panic, and we panic. But we've got to trust God. Saul panics. The king, the leader of the people, panics. But God doesn't want us to panic and disobey, to take things into our own hands. He wants us to trust him and to be obedient. Finally, this chapter shows us the end result of Saul's fear and the people's fear. The end result... Uh, in summary, is that Saul and his family will lose the kingship. So here it is, the hope of this that the people had for this kingship, the rescue and the salvation that it will bring to them. Here it is, it doesn't even last a generation. Uh, Saul hasn't even, you know, finished his reign. He's only been king maybe for a few years, and already the end is in sight. Samuel says to Saul in verse 13, You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. God required obedience, not military prowess. Not naked courage, not imagination. Not someone willing to take matters into their own hands, whatever the cost. Not someone committed to religious rituals. God wants people who trust and obey him. But more than that, God wants a leader who can lead his people in obedience as well. And Saul can't do that. Saul can't even obey God himself, let alone lead the people in obedience. And the result, God says, is that Saul's kingdom will not endure. Instead, the kingdom of Israel will be given to someone else. God says, someone whose heart lines up with his own heart. In the first place, as we'll see in the chapters to come, that person is David. If you know the Old Testament, if you know the book of Samuel, you'll know that, that the person who is has a heart that lines up with God's heart, that person is King David. But even David would fail. He'd fall into sin. He'd sleep with the woman, murder her husband. And his descendants would fail. His children would fail. But the kingdom wouldn't be taken away from David's family. Ultimately, would come the Lord Jesus Christ... The man, the descendant of David, whose heart truly lines up with God's heart. Jesus always lived in obedience to his Father, even to the point of dying on a cross. Talk about improbable obedience. But not only did Jesus always follow the Father's will, Mm -hmm. Jesus is able to lead us in obedience as well. He's able to lead us so that our heart lines up with God's heart as well. So often in our human pride, we fail to realize just how lost we really are. We fail to realize just how sinful we really are. We tend to think of ourselves as more or less okay, uh, maybe just kind of skewing off with a few missteps here and there. And so we think that what we need is just a bit of a helping hand. You know, just the, the daily spiritual pick-me-up, just to keep us on the right track. We're mostly heading in the right way, but just we just need a bit of help. But this chapter reminds us, and the events of Samuel remind us, that the obedience to God, uh, our obedience to God, is failed. We're hopelessly lost. We're blind, we're deluded, we're profoundly weak and our best ideas, rather than bringing us closer to God, seem to take us further away from God. This passage reminds us that obedience to God is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. Too easily we become afraid, it looks impossible, it looks improbable, we're driven by the desires of our own heart rather than the desires of God. It's not something that we can do ourselves and it's not something that we can manufacture if we all get around each other and kind of, you know, in the holy huddle, like before the footy match, we put our arms around each other and say, come on guys, we can do this. We've just got to play four quarters, four full quarters of Christianity. We can get through. Obedience to God is not something that, we, that we'll get if we get the right pastor. Or the right elder or youth leader or growth group leader or if we have the right parents or the right school teacher or whoever it might be, the right mentor. Obedience to God only comes through one thing and that's falling into line behind King Jesus. Being gathered up in his arms, being taught by him through the Holy Spirit and being led by him into the very presence of God. When I look at the way that the people here of Israel and Saul fell headlong into this catastrophic failure and this doubt, and I think to myself, that's me, that's, that's me hiding in the cave. Not even the cave, I'd be behind the thicket. The worst hiding place, <laughs> just desperate... quivering in fear, taking matters into my own hands and leading everybody else astray. And maybe as you read this chapter, you think of yourself as well. Hiding in a cave, hiding behind the thicket, taking matters into your own hands, coming up with your own solutions. Maybe you think of us as a church, Hiding in caves, taking matters into our own hands. Maybe you think we're a fearful church. Maybe you think we're a church that's taken on the character of the world. Maybe you think we're a lazy church or a selfish church. And it's tempting as we think about those things, and maybe some of those things or maybe all of those things are true. We need to think about that and pray about that. But it's tempting as we look about those things and as we make those assessments, it's tempting to to think that the solution is a new strategy and a new scheme, new habits, procedures and plans. But God's message is that the solution is none of those things. The solution is falling into line behind King Jesus. The solution is holding on to him for dear life as he holds securely onto us. The solution is falling on our knees and begging for Jesus to take us by the hand, to lead us in his ways and to bring us into glory. What you and I need, what this church needs, what this world needs is a clear and fresh vision of Jesus Christ. We can't make it, we can't fix it. We can't get it right. We can't be strong enough. And if you think you can, you're badly mistaken. There's only one hope, and that's Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, ascended into heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, with his people now through the Spirit, and coming back to judge the living and the dead. There's only one way to victory, and that's through Jesus. Stop hiding in caves and follow him. Let's pray.